This episode of Epicenter Bitcoin is brought to you by Shapeshift.io. With no account or signup required, it's the easiest way to buy and sell Litecoin, Dogecoin, Darkcoin, and other leading cryptocurrencies. Go to Shapeshift.io to instantly convert altcoins and to discover the future of cryptocurrency exchanges. Hello, welcome to Epicenter Bitcoin, the show which talks about the technologies, projects, and startups driving decentralization and the global cryptocurrency revolution. My name is Sebastian Couture. And my name is Brian Fabian Crane. Uh, today, we're going to revisit a topic that we've talked about often in the show, which is the issue of mining centralization. And uh, we're joined today by Amin Gunsir and Itai Eyal. They're both at uh, Cornell University in computer science, uh, well, computer science professor and a postdoc. And they've done a lot of uh, important work in this field. So I'm super excited to have them join us for this discussion today. So thanks, guys, for coming on. Thank you for having us. Thanks for having us. So uh, to get started, can you give a, a brief introduction about how you got involved in Bitcoin and what made you guys curious about this in the first place? So for my part, um, my interest in cryptocurrency started a long time ago, actually it predates uh, Bitcoin. Uh, back in uh, the 2000s, my research topic was self-organizing networks. I was looking at peer-to-peer networks. And uh, one of the problems in peer-to-peer networks, especially like networks like BitTorrent, where people are expected to donate resources, is keeping track of who has donated how much, uh, how much resources to the good of the network and uh, keeping track of that and also incentivizing them to actually provide more resources as opposed to freeloading. So to that end, I developed a cryptocurrency called Karma. And uh, it was one of the first implemented, in fact, I believe it's the first implemented cryptocurrency that uh, had distributed mining in it. This was 2004. And uh, so that was my initial sort of foray into this space. Uh, that thing gets cited a lot in academic circles. So when Bitcoin came by, uh, I read the white paper. I was very excited. I was a little miffed, to be honest, that uh, it didn't cite uh, karma. Um, and uh, I was like, oh, okay, well, let's find out if, uh, if these guys got it right or if Satoshi got it right. And uh, that, that was the beginning of my interest in, uh, in, uh, in cryptocurrencies. Yeah, that's interesting because BitTorrent, of course, is is uh, there's a big problem there about who's freeloading on the system, and and uh, traditionally people have, I mean, sites have uh, used uh, registration and kicking people off uh, when they're freeloading or not providing uh, enough enough resources to to support the wealth of the network. So right, they do that, um, but typically they rely those sites rely on uh, the actual. Uh, value reported by your client, and it's almost trivial to hack that. So you can always say like, "Hey, I download, I uploaded uh, 15 petabytes, if you want, and uh, get on the good side, good part of the good, good side of the of the website." So um, you need something more. Well, I, we needed something more robust, and that's what brought Karma along. But most uh, most Bitcoiners don't actually know about history before Satoshi. The world begins with the white paper. Uh, but there's, there's <laughs> there has been a lot of research in cryptocurrencies going back maybe two decades. Um, Ron Rivest, of course, is uh, is the is the one of the people who uh, played a big role in this. Um, and uh, Sean David Sean played a big role in this. So there's a, there's a lot of research going back maybe all the way to uh, you know I would say uh, early 80s, maybe even late 70s. Wow. And uh, Itai, what about yourself? Uh, so, uh, like many others, I heard about Bitcoin first from a friend. Uh, 
He said, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll send you a couple of Bitcoins. They were worth uh, cents then. And I told him, no, I'm, I'm not going to install yet another app on my phone. Uh, and uh, nevertheless, I, I went ahead and, and look at, looked at the, the white paper, Satoshi's white paper. And I read through it and I said, nah, this is not going to work. And I basically forgot about it. And uh, after a while, I don't know why, I, I came back to it and I started reading more thoroughly uh, to understand uh, uh, the depth behind it. And first of all, I was convinced that it is kind of going to work, maybe. <laughs> uh, and uh, second of all, I started to think about ways where it might not exactly work. Uh, and this is what led to the, to the selfish uh, mining uh, research project that uh, we did, uh, Good and myself. So how did you guys come together to work on this project? Uh, I uh, completed my, my PhD uh, two years ago, and I came to work on uh, distributed uh, systems here in Cornell. And I had this Bitcoin idea, and uh, I asked around, and people told me, go speak to this guy uh, about Bitcoin. And uh, the rest of it is history. Well, so... Uh... Itai is leaving out the part about why he came to Cornell. He came to Cornell to work on sort of old school distributed systems, which was his main effort at the time. And uh, well, he started doing this Bitcoin thing. And the uh, name of the, the 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 tech file that contained the paper that became the Selfish Mining paper was called BTC Proc for procrastination. So that was his side project, sort of uh, that kind of blossomed into a line of research. <laughs> So how much of your time do you two today spend on Bitcoin or cryptocurrency-related research? Uh, most of it. This is the, the, the center of my research, the um, uh, security of cyber currencies and uh, their, their scalability and the novel properties that they expose on, on distributed systems. So for me, I spend most of my time actually working on databases and data stores, and Bitcoin is... Uh, uh, is, uh, is not my main thing at the moment. Um, but nevertheless, I find that there are lots of exciting examples that I can take from the Bitcoin world and then apply to, uh, to data stores, to, to data management, data visualization, and so forth. And uh, the thing you brought up before, this uh, idea of uh, karma embedded in, in BitTorrent, I mean, that's, I, I've definitely heard this idea before, right, of having uh, cryptocurrency embedded uh, did you ever think of uh, revisiting that idea and sort of relaunching it with uh, cryptocurrency or has someone else done something like that? Um, I haven't actually looked. I, I've heard it many times, uh, mentioned many times myself. Um, so we ended up actually doing a startup for some time uh, around 2007 that did use something like a currency, tokens, uh, unforgeable tokens actually, to keep track of people's uh, people's uh, sort of resource contributions, and then to award them uh, resources proportionately to their contributions, but it was it's been a tough space. The whole peer-to-peer -peer file sharing space is a very very tough space. Most of the, the companies that were operating in that world have gone bankrupt. At least uh, at the time I was looking into it, um, video bandwidth is so cheap now that uh, maybe there aren't uh, that many use cases. Also. In the U.S., at least, um, residential internet speeds have stalled. So we don't really see that many opportunities to, to, to win big by taking advantage of peer resources. Now, meanwhile, it, it has proven to be 
very efficient, in my opinion, and, and often the fastest way to get have access to files. Absolutely, I was. I did a startup in this space. I was convinced it was going to take off, <laughs> um, but uh, but timing is everything. You know, two thousand seven and two thousand and uh, you know whatever it is, the three years that we did that startup, um, there was a stall, and uh, and then when we watched uh, all of our competitors mostly go go bankrupt, one of them got acquired by Akamai. Akamai uses peer to peer. Uh, for uh, distributing game updates, for example. It's a very scalable way of getting to your users. Uh, technically, it's, it's a very, very solid idea. Market-wise, I don't know. It wasn't, it wasn't uh, the right time for us back then. It might once again be the right time. Well, we, we just recorded a podcast with uh, Paul Brody, who was doing the Internet of Things for IBM. And, you know, they did this Internet of Things prototype, and there one of the components is uh, BitTorrent, right? So they, they propose using BitTorrent for devices in the future to send data around. So maybe it will have its comeback. Oh, undoubtedly, undoubtedly. These technologies never go away. And, and the core technical base is pretty, is, is, is super exciting. And you have access to a set of functionality that's otherwise very expensive uh, to deploy. So, um, so yeah, no, it's, it's not going anywhere. So um, talk about the selfish mining paper. Is, is that your, has that been sort of the main, uh, the main, part of your work or maybe the, the main result of your work? Or? So it was the start of our work, I would say. So uh, um, the, we've gone beyond selfish mining to look at a bunch of other issues. So I think maybe to give, to give this some historical context, we started by looking at what made the blockchain secure and whether those protocols were indeed uh, as good as claimed, whether the sort of the folk theorems around Bitcoin really held. And they mostly hold, except you know, some of the most fundamental ones were we found with selfish mining were not right. That that the protocol, as devised by Satoshi, could be gained. That was the big sort of surprising result with selfish mining. Following that, we started looking into other issues related to mining, especially centralization. So two-phase proofs of work, for example, to avoid centralization, to uh, uh, to to make sure that people don't grow too big. Then Itai looked at, um, at mining pools and mining pool strategies, uh, what, what their best options are and what, when they can attack each other and under what circumstances they would do so, uh, which is its own fascinating line of work. And these days we're looking at how to uh, address uh, two issues that I think are the burning big issues with Bitcoin at the moment, which are scalability of the network and uh, security of the network. I think security affects adoption quite a bit. And, uh, and so those are, are the two things that sort of drive us. And so with the work and research that you've done in distributed database systems, I suppose that you have quite a, I mean, you, you have a different view perhaps on scalability than someone who's uh, solely um, involved with, in Bitcoin, right? Um, perhaps, I think the goals are the same. Everybody wants the network to, to scale out and, uh, and to scale up, right? So uh, Bitcoin's very good at scaling out and incorporating new players, that's wonderful. Um, in scaling up, there may well be some limitations. And uh, at the moment, the block size, etc., limit the network to uh, a number of transactions that serves the network well, but will likely not allow it to compete with Visa and the like. And so we want to, to make sure that the network is competitive. Well, let's revisit the, the topic of scalability later. Um, for selfish mining, can you give a, a summary of what your finding was in that area? Uh, yeah, yeah, of course. So uh, the the um, 
the main result, perhaps to start with the bottom line, is uh, that uh, you need at least two-thirds of the network uh, to be honest miners. So we're talking about the miners that generate the blocks. Uh, it was commonly believed that as long as a majority, more than half of them, are honestly working, then uh, the network is fine. And what we found out is that you actually need at least uh, two-thirds uh, of the miners to be honest. Uh, and actually, this is uh, an optimistic bound. Uh, if you don't make any assumptions, then the bound may be even worse. So you'll need more than two-thirds for the network to be safe. Um, the attack is, is, uh, is not terribly complicated. The analysis is not trivial, but the attack is, is uh, pretty elegant and straightforward. Uh, you know that blocks are generated one after the other, and when a miner generates a block, he's supposed to publish it to the network, and then everybody work and try to create a block that will follow this original block. And with selfish mining, the attacker keeps the block to itself and mines on top of it uh, without exposing it to the network. And it only exposes this uh, secret chain, the local secret chain, when it has to, uh, in order to maximize its revenue. So uh, it turns out that by doing that, a miner can actually increase its revenue and earn more than he should, more than his uh, fair share of the mining power. And this is the, the essence of the attack. So, I mean, I presume if, if a miner holds back the block, right? So you, you, of course, run a risk then that someone else finds a block and, and sort of the valid block you found now you know the block rewards lost and you lose the money what what in what situation is it still better for the miner to hold back and not publish it it's uh, it's it's kind of like a winning strategy at blackjack so you're not going to always win it's uh, uh, it, it's not there are cases where you take a risk by holding the block and you know the one that you identified is the first block that you have uh, discovered and you're keeping it secret, if the network finds a block at the same time, well, then now you're at a bit of a risk, and you might indeed lose that one block. Um, but uh, as I said, it's just like a strategy in blackjack. On, on average, you are expected to win, because sometimes you will end up winning in the network, and you, get, you will end up uh, progressing more than the, the network itself, the honest people who came up with the competing block. Sometimes you'll end up building two blocks on your own that you're keeping secret. So when the network comes up with one block, well, you then plunk down your two blocks and uh, kill off and orphan off that other one. So there are a number of scenarios where you win. And uh, uh, I did the analysis on this, and, uh, and it's uh, very clear that on average you're expected to win, and in some cases you're expected to win big with selfish money. So, so is, is the basic idea of this that... Uh, a miner in this scenario can kind of waste work for other miners so that then his work is sort of a, a larger proportion of the total work of the network and, and thus he can... Yeah, yeah you, you got it. That is the core idea. You can't... With the hashing power you have, um, now that's the hashing power you've got, right? So, so now the trick here is uh, getting other people to, to work on solving what are essentially stale puzzles and therefore wasting their effort, and uh, thus allowing whatever percentage of the hashing power you've got to actually reap more rewards than, than its fair share. Okay, so let me just rephrase this the way I understood. 
uh, let's see if I, I understand this right. So you have one pool that is uh, conducting the attack and the rest of the miners. The miners that are not participating in the attack will mine blocks. And then your attacking pool, so for example, the rest of the network may mine two blocks and then your attacking pool may have three. And at that point you've held onto those three and then you publish them um, essentially being one block ahead of the rest of the network. Yep. yep. Okay. And then, so if then the bitcoins, the subsidy um, has been issued to those other, to the rest of the network for those two blocks that they mined, um, what happens to, to those bitcoins? Are, have they been issued already, or? So the subsidy, the way the subsidy works is that uh, you only get your uh, your cash if your block ends up in the main chain. Uh, I mean, how is subsidy right, implemented? Okay. Really, it's just a transaction, a Coinbase transaction at the head of the block. So if you mine the block and you added up, ended up uh, outside the main chain, then. Okay, right. So indeed, um, you cannot exercise the the, uh, the block subsidy for a hundred blocks after it has been mined. So uh, the selfish miner will end up uh, being able to, if the selfish miner is able to orphan your blocks off, your blocks don't appear in the record. They disappear, and uh, the selfish guy will collect those rewards. Okay, of course. But yeah, so so the basic idea, right, is that a miner basically tries to make other miners waste their hashing power, right? So, because because let's say you are ahead of everyone else and like two blocks. Now, if you keep mining on that, everybody else is mining on chain that's two blocks behind. You're basically sure that all these other miners are wasting all that energy, and as soon as you publish, it's it's just all wasted work. Notice, of course, that you also waste some work, like you you noted before. So some of the blocks you generate are going to be pruned as well because right. uh, someone else is generating the blocks, and your block is pruned. So you also lose some of your own uh, mining power. And the point is that the others lose more than yeah, you yeah, do. Yeah. And because the um, the mining rate uh, is adaptive, then over time, you will earn more than they do. And I guess one of the consequences, now as an attacker, you really would care a lot about being con really well connected with the network, no? I mean, I guess if you, if you found a block, no? And if you have nodes all over, all over the world, and then maybe you could send a block already that was found to all those nodes so that if another block comes in, you can propagate it extremely fast. No, That's, that's, that's a very good point because the network uh, is, uh, is not prepared for that kind of attack. So Bitcoin is incredibly robust uh, to partitioning and uh, denial of service type of attacks. Uh, it's... it's uh, in practice, it has been proven that it's, it has been demonstrated that it's impossible to, to deny, deny service or partition the network. But uh, Bitcoin doesn't try uh, to propagate blocks very fast. And so if you as the attacker uh, build up the infrastructure to, block, to propagate blocks very fast, then you're ahead. And, and Brian, you outlined exactly what a good attacker would do. So. Uh, I'm a little afraid of you right now, but uh, <laughs> so indeed, you'd end up building a network of sensors and uh, you'd pre-place your block next to uh, other people. And uh, that way, as soon as you find out that there's a competing block, you can push your own block out. 
And notice that full nodes, uh, they have a bit of a delay between uh, accepting a block and forwarding it on. So, uh, uh, so that you can take advantage of that. And your nodes don't have to have that delay, especially if you've pre-placed your block across the globe. Uh, you can really push yours out faster than other people. Right, yeah. This is solely for the one case. Like, you don't have to... Um, to necessarily win these battles every single time to win overall. So if you're an attacker with more than 33% of the network, then it doesn't matter if you lose these head-to-head -head battles inside the network. You have so much hashing power if you're above 33% that nobody can stop you because you'll be able to build on your own block with enough frequency that you'll be able to get more than your fair share. That's why it's really dangerous to have people uh, to have mining pools above a third of the network. There's lots more to talk about, but before we do that, let's take a short break to talk about Shapeshift. Shapeshift is the fast and easy way to buy and sell altcoins. If you've ever tried to uh, buy and sell altcoins, you know how complicated that can be. You have to find a replicable exchange, create an account there, place an order, wait for the order to be fulfilled. That can take a long time. Not with Shapeshift. Shapeshift uh, allows you to convert about 25 different altcoins and uh, they're adding new coins all the time. So you just go to their website, shapeshift.io, and use their uh, currency conversion tool, which looks a lot like Google Translate for cryptocurrencies. You choose the currency you want to convert. So for instance, Dogecoin, and also the currency you want to receive. So Bitcoin, for instance, and hit start. Once you do that, you'll be presented with uh, a uh, Dogecoin address and QR code, which you uh, would send Dogecoin to, and uh, those would be converted and sent to the Bitcoin address with no confirmations needed. So it's really fast. It takes anywhere between 30 seconds to a minute to, uh, for that transaction to go through. And you don't even need to create an account. They don't even want your email address. So your privacy stays protected. And uh, did I mention it was fast? Because it is fast. It takes uh, no time at all. So Shapeshift is the fast and easy way to buy and sell all coins. And uh, we'd like to thank them for the support. Go to shapeshift.io to give it a try. And so can you explain then how, so how would this play out if, if, if someone had an, the idea to uh, play out this attack and, 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 impl and implement it? Um, how, what, what would he do? So that's a great question. So there are a bunch of interesting dynamics. So um, here, it, we would start, or an attacker uh, would start um, by creating a selfish mining uh, pool controller. That pool controller, like it I explained before, would not uh, immediately publish the blocks he finds, uh, and instead would sit on them and would, uh, would get its uh, <coughs> miners <coughs> to, uh, to build up on, uh, on its secret, secret uh, block. Now... Um, so l let me just stop you there. Does the, does the pool... Does only the pool controller have to be aware of this attack or do the miners also need to be aware? Uh, the miners are working for the pool controller and they will, they will know what hash or on which hash they're, uh, they are uh, <coughs> mining. And if they correlate that with the publicly known uh, tail of the blockchain, then they will be able to tell that they are indeed currently being used to mine selfishly. So that's one way to detect if your pool controller is a selfish miner. Okay. Um, which is, I think, where your question was going. Right, so, that, so then the, the pool controller, you were saying? Ah, so the pool controller then um, has, a, has its own private chain. So the thing that I was pointing out before is if the pool has more than 33% of the hash power, 
it doesn't have to engage in any of these head-to-head -head battles. It just doesn't care. If it wins them, it's nice. Uh, but even if it doesn't win them, it will still, on average, come out ahead because uh, he'll be able to build chains of, you know, sh uh, he'll be able to get ahead by two blocks on occasion and with enough frequency that he'll be able to kill off uh, the competing blocks. And that alone will give him uh, enough of a boost to get more than 33% of the revenue. And after 33%, he gets more and more and more. Um, and a funny dynamic develops. This, is, this was part of the selfish mining work that was kind of interesting. Is um, if, if a selfish miner emerges and he's making money, then uh, suppose a new person comes along. Now, you might imagine, okay, well, what's, what's this person going to do? Well, he has two strategies available to him at the moment. Uh, he could follow the honest protocol, and then he'll make less money than he should because the selfish miner is operating in the network. He could selfishly mine for himself, and that's fine too, um, except you know, he's not going to make all that much money with that because he's small. Or he could join forces with the existing selfish miner. And that's where we found a very interesting dynamic where by combining forces, they actually make more money than they would individually. So the network has a as an incentive mechanism for selfish miners to coalesce together and get bigger and bigger and bigger, which is really dangerous for the network because that would tend the network or tend the selfish miner towards 50%. So, yeah, so where would this end up, right? Because obviously, uh, I mean, at the extreme, when the selfish miner controls the whole network, then there's no point of selfish mining anymore. That's exactly right. So uh, the... Um the analysis we use is actually only relevant while the selfish miner, uh, the selfish mining pool, uh, is a strict minority. Uh, once it gets close to fifty percent, you don't need selfish mining to to earn more than you should. You can do uh, um, much more devastating attacks. Um, and there are the analysis here is is uh, different. You have to ask yourself. Uh, how far would uh, would an attacker want to go? But I think the point here is that we we don't want to test that. Uh, we don't want the network to get there. Uh, you don't want to trust on people's good intentions or make assumptions on their uh, game theoretical uh, incentives. You want the, net the network to be uh, strongly robust against this uh, kind of attack. Uh, Specifically, you don't want to guess what the threshold exactly is. So how large uh, an attacker has to be. We, we show that it's somewhere between a very small miner and 33%, but we don't really know what the minimum size of an attacker is. And some of the pools, uh, even today, are, are dangerously large to the extent that if, if two or three pools decide to go malicious and join forces, uh, they can... Uh, they can uh, uh, start a selfish mining attack. And th this is something that, uh, that the network should be able to uh, provably prevent. So, so the 50, I was going to point out that the 50% 50, 50, the 50 threshold is like the apocalypse. We should never, never get there. And the reasoning about the ever after, the what happens after the apocalypse when... You know the network has is under the control of a single single entity. Uh, for a decentralized currency, it's it's very hard to reason about what's going to happen at that point. And as Itai pointed out, then you have to figure out well what were the motivations of the miners? Are they trying to 
for example, maliciously take down the network, in which case they're really, they're just super happy when they reach that state. Or are they <coughs> rational actors that want to make money? Well, in that case, maybe they'll back off slightly from 50%, but hover at that boundary. Or maybe they have a time bound. They're a bunch of miners whose uh, machinery is getting out of date, and they don't care if they eke out the last cent from the network within six months or whenever it is that their machinery is timing out. So there are a bunch of different considerations. It's really hard to know what happens. And so uh, these sort of counter-arguments about, oh, a selfish miner would never do that because he wouldn't want to hurt the network, they don't really make sense. Um, they all rely on assuming a whole lot of things about what the selfish miner wants in the long term uh, and, and post-apocalypse. So, as Itai pointed out, um, what we want to do is make sure the network is robust against such attacks. And then, in fact, we developed a fix for selfish mining. So that was the positive side of this whole line of research. Not only did we identify the attack, but also identify a very simple fix that if a selfish miner were to emerge, we could just deploy it. So, what kind of fix is that? So the fix adds some randomization into the network that currently people took for granted that the selfish miner takes advantage of. Um, so essentially what, what we do is we make sure that uh, whenever there are certain battles inside the network, uh, sort of block, blocks race inside the network, we randomize who wins. That is, somebody who pre-places his blocks, somebody who gets rid of the delay from his uh, node loops and so forth, he doesn't have an advantage over the regular honest nodes. And so that ensures that a selfish miner has to be at least 25% uh, big before he can succeed. At the moment, as Itai pointed out, we don't know. Maybe a 5%er could actually end up mining selfishly and making 7% of the, of, the, of the money. Or a 10%er could end up making a few, other, few extra percent. Uh, we just don't know. But with this fix, we know that if you're below 25%, selfish mining is not a sane strategy for you. It's a net money losing strategy. That's what the fix ensures. So, but you know, there is an impossibility on the other side of this. So if somebody is bigger than 33%, nothing, absolutely nothing in the protocol can actually do anything about that, uh, that, uh, that selfish miner. So we have to diligently, so we have to have a threshold with our fix is 25%. And we have to sort of put social pressures on people to, uh, to make sure they don't exceed the threshold. Now this fix, you mentioned that the, the if we get to this point, we would implement the fix. Uh, is this something that needs to be deployed when there is a selfish mining attack occurring or can we implement this uh, before that would happen? That's a good question. We, it can be implemented, but we've implemented it. It has got the, the code um, and uh, the, the core developers know about the fix, and, uh, but there have been other issues that are more pressing on the Bitcoin horizon. So uh, uh, it could be pre-deployed, it could be deployed on demand, um, it's, it's ready to go, everybody knows about the problem and the fix. So, but this is still only, I mean, as you mentioned, right, it only, it only would protect from an attacker that's, you know, not too big, so sort of, uh, I guess there also means if we assume that an attacker would grow during the attack because others would join the pool to make more money, then there would be a very narrow time window, perhaps only during which one could uh, deploy such a fix. Plus, I guess there's always the situation, right? I mean, if, I'm, if I were doing the selfish mining attack as an attacker, 
you know, even if that fix is deployed and now I'm not profiting anymore from the attack, I might be willing to pay more to people to just come along until I'm above that 33% threshold. That those are fascinating concerns. And that's what actually led Itai to his next batch of work, which is what keeps the pools from growing without bound. And we started out um, just essentially being very worried that these pools, once they get big, there really is no force opposing them. And with selfish mining, they, they tend to get bigger and bigger, and it's actually very dangerous for everyone. So uh, Itai did some uh, work on uh, the, uh, the miner's dilemma. And uh, he looked at uh, sort of modeling what happens to big pools. And he has a very surprising result, and I'll let him explain it. But it completely blew at least my mind away that, uh, that pools, that there is a force that keeps pools from growing without bound, that pools could actually attack each other. And in doing so, uh, make more money than they should. That is, uh, they use some of their hash power to attack another miner, a competitor, and, uh, and end up wasting effort, or seemingly waste effort, but actually make more revenue. Vitai, why don't you explain the, sort of the, the forces at play that keep the miners uh, in check? Yeah, thanks, Gun. That was a perfect intro, really. Uh, I'll, uh, I'll start with some background, maybe. So the, the um, uh, basis for this analysis uh, is something called uh, block withholding. Uh, this, this is an old attack uh, from uh, perhaps even from Adam Beck's uh, Hashcash work in 2002. And uh, more recently, it was uh, mentioned by Manny Rosenfeld in 2011. Uh, so block withholding is a different kind of attack than selfish mining. It's an attack. It's an attack that a miner uh, with which an, a miner attacks the pool he's working for. And the way it works is very simple. Uh, the miner works for the pool. It repro reports partial proofs of work, so it demonstrates to the pool that it is actually working for it. But when the miner finds a full solution, so a full block that the pool can use. It just deletes this block and does not contribute it to the pool. Uh, now, because of the way Bitcoin works, this block cannot be used for anything. It's not like selfish mining. The block is discarded. So the miner harms the pool because it denies it from profit, but it also harms itself because it gets less revenue from the pool that it works with. Uh, and this was for a long time considered uh, an attack that can only harm the pool and it costs you something. It's a sabotage attack. Uh, you decide that you want to harm some pool due to whatever uh, personal or non-personal reasons uh, and you harm it and you pay something for the harm you cause. But uh, just uh, recently, last year, um, uh, Gavin Andreessen asked the Small question on Twitter. He asked, do we know whether uh, block withholding is actually a better strategy in some cases? And uh, following, this, uh, <laughs> the, the, following this tweet, it turned out that there were at least uh, three, three works in progress, uh, mine included, uh, that were actually investigating what happened when when someone wanted to use uh, block withholding to increase their revenue. Uh, and uh, the simple fact is that you can do that, uh, just as Gun explained. So one pool 
could uh, decide to do block withholding against another pool as if it was a minor. And so reduce the other pool's revenue and increase the first pool's revenue. Uh, and so selfish, uh, so sorry, so block withholding is sometimes not just uh, not just a sabotage attack, but it can only increase the attacker's revenue. And uh, what was interesting for me, what I started investigating is what happens when the two pools attack one another. So pool A attacks pool B, and the revenue of pool B decreases and the revenue of pool A increases. But then pool B decides to attack back. And so it turns out that pool B can increase its revenue a little bit. So it won't earn as much, but it will own more, more than it was just being attacked. And then uh, the surprise came. It turns out that when both pools attack each other, both of the revenue uh, becomes lower than what it would have been if they just honestly uh, mined. So what happens? Each pool has a motivation to attack the other pool. Whether or not it is being attacked, it should attack the other pool. So both of them attack each other, and then the revenues of both pools decreases. This is the prisoner's dilemma, or in this case, uh, I called it the miner's dilemma. Uh, both of them should attack, and then both of them make less money. We once had a talk about this, actually, at the, the Berlin meetup here. Um, and one, one thing that sort of came up was the idea that a pool could maybe pay a bonus uh, if a, for a miner who submits a full proof of work, so who actually um, actually finds a block. Of course, this would, uh, of course, the downside of this right would be that then the variance would increase for small miners, right? So, so you you compromising some of the actual benefit of a pool. But would this prevent this attack? Uh, well, you have to run the numbers with exactly uh, what kind of bonus you're going to give. In the most extreme case, you just give the entire block to the miner and you're actually not, uh, not doing pooled mining. Uh, but the answer is what you just said. Uh, th th there are some solutions like uh, uh, seniority and, and uh, bonus for, for miners that find full proofs of work. They all reduce uh, the attractiveness of a pool. And they could push miners to go to pools that do not have this limitation. Uh, my hope is that uh, this discovery will lead miners to join forces in smaller pools where they really trust one another uh, not to cheat. And this this could be very a very good step for the for the Bitcoin ecosystem, where uh, miners work in smaller pools. They are still pooled enough for them to have a steady revenue, but uh, the risk of uh, decentralization. Uh, oh, sorry, of centralization uh, will be reduced. So how would you get the miners in these smaller pools to trust one another? Because you, you'd still have the same incentives, right? I mean, if you, if you can do this sort of uh, withholding attack, you, you still would, right? In a, even in a private pool. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. So really only with out-of-band uh, mechanisms. They have to know each other, know their identities, or anything that would... Uh, disincentivize a, a miner from attacking. But Brian, this is a good development, right? So it's much better to have lots and lots of small pools uh, than to have a few, almost, uh, just a couple of really, really large anonymous entities that nobody knows who's behind, how it's being operated, and so forth. So we would like Bitcoin to actually be 
really decentralized. We would like the pools to be as small as possible. Yeah, yeah, uh, absolutely, right. But the the question would be maybe if if it's if it's actually really difficult to get those kind of agreements in the small pools, then maybe that would mean for small miner, uh, I'm not going to mine at all. And then what's left could be, you know, larger miners who just mine on their own and not with a pool. Yeah, that's a valid concern. I think, uh, uh, but people underestimate the, uh, uh, the benefits of even small pools, right? So if I have just a 1% of the hashing power of Bitcoin, that's already uh, low enough variance. That is, it doesn't really, if you go from 5% to 45%, you know, all you're doing is hurting the network, really. The, the reduction in variance is really not that big of a, of a gain. So I would much rather see, you know, 50 small 1% or 101 percenters than, than just a couple of, uh, you know, as we saw with Ghash, for example, one 155 percenter. That was terrible. So, so is there anything we can do to sort of, you know, hasten our progress to this world except for buying a lot of mining hardware and starting uh, to, you know, mine on pools and withhold blocks so to frustrate them <laughs> into downsizing? <laughs> That's a good question. I think I think the nice thing is uh, is that the, the larger pools that are professionally operated um, might actually attack each other and keep each other in check. That is, I was really relieved to really hear of of of, of uh, Itai's discovery there. It was uh, it was essentially just like, oh my God, thank God there is something that's going to actually keep these guys in check because without this, all we had was angry posts on on forums and people trying to put just social pressure and making noise, whereas now we have a technical measure. So if somebody gets really big, then uh, you might start eyeing them, you know, as a, as a potential attack target and uh, take them down a notch. Has somebody not, I, I, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but is it not Manny Rosenfeld who had proposed a system by which uh, miners would be disincentivized from joining large pools? Many has a very nice paper on uh, on uh, different ways of paying out mining pools uh, that I happen to like a lot. I, I think that in in uh, Rosenfeld's uh, paper on on reward system, he suggested a mechanism uh, to to defend so for a pool to defend against uh, against block withholding, uh, but by making a change to the way the proof of work works. So not something that's directly applicable for Bitcoin, but rather uh, a different currency or a different method to solve it in a different currency. Um, but uh, as as we as we said, we we do not believe that this is uh, th this is contributing to the health of the of the system. Uh, we actually want uh, pools to have this threat, uh, so they do not become too large. Today's magic word is selfish, S-E-L-F-I-S-H. Go to letstalkbitcoin.com to sign in, enter the magic word, and claim your part of the listener reward. Do you guys think this is sufficient? Because it, it, there are probably other ways, right, that the larger pools can benefit. Uh, but uh, do, you, do you think this will be um, sufficient to sort of, you know, keep Bitcoin at least reasonably decentralized and thus, you know, prevent some of these um, apocalyptic scenarios from happening? 
That's a good question. It's hard to tell. I think uh, so far so good. And uh, Bitcoin has probably benefited immensely from having many of its participants be basically honest, and in fact, in many cases, altruistic participants. Right? People run full nodes just to run full nodes. Um, people do not engage in these kinds of attacks, uh, in selfish mining attacks, for example. Um, we've seen miners attack each other. There have been cases of that, which is a good development because it breaks apart the really large open pools. So, so it seems like this is sort of keeping the, the, the community going at the moment. Um, we might need additional mechanisms and, uh, you know, we, we need a community of researchers to sort of think up what the different attack scenarios might be and what the defenses might be. So Itai and I are trying to do our part. There are many others like us actually looking into, into Bitcoin now that it's, it's gained so much traction and, and has become such an interesting sort of fertile ground for ideas. Um, actually, this is a, a great maybe segue to bring up one of my concerns. So I, I, I brought up with a, a few people and, and once we, we did an episode on this as well. Uh, but it's just a sort of, and then I think this is maybe a, a little bit of a larger, bigger picture and more longer term concern about security of proof of work. But right, so if we, if we assume that an attacker actually, you know, has to go out and then purchase the majority of the hashing power to, you know, do all these evil things, right, then, uh, you know, maybe today would cost, I don't know, a hundred million dollars, or who knows how much, or maybe less. But um, so, you know, does this make sense to do that? Uh, well, depends, right? Depends on, on how much you can benefit from an attack. So one of the things that worry me a little bit, right, is that with decreasing transaction fees, uh, well, transaction fees we'll see, I guess, but decreasing block reward, uh, you know, that sort of as a proportion, if Bitcoin gains in value, um, you know, the, the mining reward, total mining reward will be fairly small and thus the total value of the hardware will be fairly small. So it will be actually uh, quite cheap and become even cheaper in the future to attack Bitcoin. So this is something that worries me quite a lot. And I guess the most pressing point for that will be at the block halving, right? When a lot of mining hardware becomes sort of worthless. Yeah, I've seen a bunch of people actually worry quite a bit about the, the block halving. And you're right, it's going to have an effect. Um, but I, I don't know that it's going to be a, you know, a, a devastating thing. It's, uh, uh, as it is, mining hardware becomes stale or becomes uh, sort of, uh, outdated fairly fast anyway. So the miners are continually churning their hardware and they don't have an infinite time horizon. They actually have typically a six-month time horizon. So, um, so I think a lot, of, a lot of the worry there with the halving is, uh, is probably a little misplaced. Sure, we're going to have a drop in, in, uh, in hash rate maybe, um, but I don't think it's going to make it um, I, it's just, you know, there have been a bunch of alternative currencies that went through the halving and they, they did okay. So I don't see next July, not this one, the next July as being a big potential problem point. Um, but, you know, that's just my opinion on this. I would like, I'd like to add that I, I don't think that, uh, that the halving is a, is a singular point. Uh, when, when people buy their equipment and they, when people exchange Bitcoin, uh, they know when halving is going to happen and uh, this is incorporated in the exchange rate, in the price of mining equipment, in, in everything. Uh, it's not going to come as a surprise. Uh, for the really long range, uh, when 
when the subsidy is, is going to drop to zero, that's a bigger question and really hard to tell. Yeah, I mean, I mean, actually, when I started starting to be concerned about that, I actually talked about this with Channel 11 at one point, and I didn't even, I was concerned about this thing before the block halving, and he was like, oh, the block halving is when this is going to be most dangerous. And, and I think this true, perhaps, but I, I think actually what makes me more concerned is the possibility of shorting Bitcoin, right? Let's say there's a Bitcoin ETF or like Coinbase and maybe you can get derivatives from Wall Street banks and stuff. You know, if you can take a, a big short position on Bitcoin, uh, well, you know, then uh, it may, you know, let's say we can take a, a very large short position so that if you gain, you can make $5 billion or something. Well, would you lose $100 million or $200 million on an attack? Well, perhaps, right? Uh, and, and then an attack could even be, you know, it doesn't have to destroy Bitcoin. It just has to disrupt it enough to the price to collapse. Right. No, that's a, that's a real concern. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's yeah, the, being able to benefit from the short side opens us up to a larger number of players who could actually launch attacks. Um, but, uh, but I have faith in the sort of the... I have faith in two things. One is the technology, the core technology itself. It really resists sort of the, uh, the, the a large classes of class of attacks, civil attacks, um, and uh, uh, and uh, and DOS attacks, denial of service attacks, really, really well. It's designed to do so. Um, and the second thing I have faith in, um, which was borne out by what happened when the unintentional fork happened, which was the community came together and managed to patch its way through what would have been a devastating event. And the fact that it was able to, to assemble itself and react to it in such a fast manner is actually a very, very good sign that should we face some unanticipated thing, uh, we could potentially come together and develop a patch for it and, uh, and then go from there. So moving on to our next topic, uh, which is the topic of scalability, which uh, we is also one of those topics we keep coming back to and uh, is... Uh, quite disgusting the ecosystem and in fact uh, uh, we had Vitalik on a few months ago I believe uh, and he just published a paper on scalability which I personally have not read yet but I'm um, getting the courage to do so soon. Um, can you perhaps address some of uh, some of the challenges that you think are most pressing to Bitcoin with regards to scalability and some solutions that uh, might uh, uh, remedy those problems. So the, um, the the thing that prohibits uh, immediate and uh, simple scalability is that it takes time for blocks to propagate uh, throughout the network. Uh, and if you make blocks larger, or if you try to uh, reduce the interval between blocks, then uh, you're going to get more forks. And uh, forks are uh, terrible uh, for Bitcoin, uh, not in a catastrophic sense, but uh, if you have a lot of forks, then it means that uh, users have to wait for a longer time until they're sure that their transaction was in place. So you're trading off bandwidth uh, for latency. You, on, the on the one hand, you want to see transactions go out very fast, uh, and on the other hand, you want a lot of transactions per second, 
And uh, this trade-off is is the big challenge for uh, for Bitcoin scalability. So on one hand, you're uh, so what you're talking about is increasing the block size to say 20 megabytes. So on one hand, uh, you're including more transactions in those blocks, but those blocks are taking potentially more time to get validated. I don't think that we'll see that for 20 megabytes, but uh, if you if you reduce the I mean if, if you eliminate the limit completely and allow for uh, for a uh, hundred uh, half a gig uh, transactions, then suddenly you will have problems. So I think it's illustrative to sort of think in uh, just just as thought experiments to think about what would happen in the ve- in the way extremes. Imagine, that's what Itai was mentioning, imagine that your blocks are a terabyte big. Obviously, it's going to take so long to transmit that block that uh, by the time it's, it reaches, you know, propagates throughout the network, other people will have come up with their own block and there will be forks and so forth. Uh, also, imagine that you shorten the time between blocks to, um, to let's say, a minute, and, or maybe even less, say, to a few seconds, uh, and instead of um, instead of waiting for six confirmations, now you wait for six thousand confirmations. It's the same amount of time, same amount of hashing power. Um, it seems like it's an equivalent transformation to what we have now, but it actually isn't. It actually creates again lots of the opportunity for lots and lots of forks to arise. So so you can see that these two solution strategies, at least in the limit, uh, are not very good. So. Uh, now, there's a different debate being had among the core developers about expanding the block size from its current limit to its next up, you know, to going up one notch. That's a separate issue. Um, I think that's essentially parameter selection. And uh, Itai and I have been thinking sort of more broadly about what fundamental things are at stake here and what are the sort of the, the bigger mechanisms that we could sort of play with uh, to improve scalability. Um, so we are in a preliminary stage at the moment, and um, the uh, the scalability issue will play itself out among the core developers. They're going to pick a set of block size parameters that make sense for the current network as it is and current network bandwidths as they are, um, and uh, we'll see. Um, and our work will hopefully come in at a point that's not it's not suitable for immediate deployment right now, but uh, but will perhaps come in. Uh, when those kinds of changes, the parameter selection is no longer sufficient to really scale the network up. So is there anything you can, because right, I mean, if you, if you do those kind of yeah, changes, you go to 20 megabytes or whatever, or 50 megabytes or something, I mean, uh, that, of course, can work well as long as Bitcoin stays as like small niche thing. But then if you talk about the sort of aspirations when you have in the space, then that completely insufficient, right? Then you need to go up by much, much more. And, uh, you know, we, we did the Internet of Things episode, you know, if you imagine like now machine to machine payments with Bitcoin and stuff, then, you know, maybe you actually you need to go orders of magnitude above something that even Visa does today. So do you think that will ever be possible with Bitcoin? I hope so. I hope so. We, we are banking on making it so. Um, so we're working very much on uh, changing or adding things to the protocol, not changing the base idea, but adding things to the protocol that allows us to, to reach out to maybe four or five orders of magnitude improvement to the scalability rate. Cool. That's great that uh, someone's working on this. 
<laughs> when you say four or five orders of magnitude improvement uh, on the current, uh, like basically on, on what is currently possible now in terms of volume, right? Uh, yes, yes, exactly. Okay, but you know, with regards to what Brian just just mentioned, if we want to get to some orders of magnitude like Visa or potentially uh, handling the transactions of several billion internet connected devices, well, five five orders of magnitude would be that would be uh, so. What is today maybe the limit? Maybe like five transactions per second or something? No. Yeah, three three to seven, somewhere between three to seven. Yeah. So if we go up to if we go up to thirty thousand transactions per second, we're already better than Visa territory, which is 20,000 to 40,000, or maybe about Visa territory. I think we can take a breather there and think about the next, next thing after that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> That's so. true. Maybe we should be, um, uh, yeah. <laughs> we won't complain if we're there. But, yeah. uh, uh, but can you say anything about, like, how? Because it seems like... Uh, would that still have one central blockchain that holds all the transactions or would you have some sort of uh, separate blockchains maybe or, or do you think sidechains are a part of that solution? Sidechain, so the, the, um, uh, like Dun said, we're, we're keeping the, uh, the essence of, of, uh, of, uh, of the blockchain technology uh, uh, still there, it's not a completely different uh, algorithm, uh, but uh, perhaps it's a, it's a bit uh, too early to, to talk about the exact details. Um, Sidechains, I think, are, are a different kind of, kind of story because the, um, they're offering a different level of, of uh, security. Yeah. Uh, in, in some sense, each sidechain uh, takes care of its own security. And it can go different ways. Okay, well, perhaps we'll have to come back and uh, have you guys back on at some point when uh, we can talk more about the scalability and when the issue comes that we now can uh, make all the, the Visa people very angry that Bitcoin is now has more capacity. So when uh, we're talking about uh, the future of Bitcoin, where do you guys see this going? I mean, I, I guess we sort of uh, alluded to it now. Uh, by bringing up this visa comparison, is did you see this becoming the sort of um, currency or payment system universally used of the future, or, or what's what's your vision for Bitcoin? I would love to see that happen. I'm not sure if it will. Um, so it's uh, as a scientist, uh, first and foremost, we have to be open-minded. There have been many other payment systems in the past, and. Uh, they succeed based on a whole bunch of reasons, and now all of the stars have to line up for success, I think. Um, and then they fail and they get replaced by something else. But I think the technology that Bitcoin brought to the table is so new and so, so revolutionizing that that, that core technology, uh, the, the idea of a global ledger, for example, the idea of a self-organizing network that propagates these uh, uh, unforgeable transactions, these core ideas, I think, are, are here to stay with us for a while. And, um, and there will be probably uh, successors to Bitcoin, or perhaps uh, Bitcoin will be its own successor if it's, if it's good enough to evolve, if the community around it is, uh, doesn't get stagnant, doesn't get uh, mired in uh, technical sort of impasses and so forth. Uh, so if it can actually evolve and change, then, uh, then yes, it's uh, a lot of these, uh, the future is, is wide open, right? I really don't see the value of 
of holding and exchanging shiny metals. Um, and I, I can imagine that, uh, that, uh, that the, the digital world needs a, a digital store of value. Uh, but it takes a lot to really be a, a trustworthy store of value. Um, so on that topic, I think there are real challenges. So scalability was one big challenge. I think we talked about it a little bit. Uh, the second thing that makes me uneasy at night is related to security. It's in, in particular related to security of clients and security of servers. That is, the, sort of the exchanges and so forth that implement Bitcoin-based services or value-added things on top of the blockchain. So um, the, the client security story is, as you know, uh, not so great. It's okay for a techno-savvy person to navigate. You know, there are these 37-step uh, sort of uh, write-ups about what you're supposed to do to secure your Bitcoins. And at some point, they involve actually building a pyramid, hiding your, your paper wallet, killing everybody involved in its construction, and so forth. <laughs> you know, these are, yeah, that's, that's what it takes these days. And it's just not really acceptable to go mainstream, right? You know, your, your uh, non-computer savvy relatives will find it difficult to actually keep their stuff safe. And uh, the, the, we've had some, some attempts to improve the situation. I love multi-sig uh, work but I find them hard to use myself, so I can't imagine that that's actually good. So there has to be something better there. And sadly, I think we are dependent on our computing infrastructure, on, on the security of cell phones, on the security of laptops, and so forth. So we need better technology, just fundamental infrastructure that's better, more secure, more trustworthy for client security. Mm, um, I, I, I think so. My, my view on security is that it, it's gotten a, a lot better in the last year and, and we, we are getting there. Um, I, I personally think that there's a lot of technology that can allow for security. So you mentioned multi-sig. Uh, we, could, we could also mention uh, some hardware solutions like, uh, like Ledger, for instance. Um, then it's just a matter of figuring out what the right user experience is uh, for that technology to be for for that technology to be used by you know uh just about you know anyone um but i do think that in terms of technology uh i mean we're pretty much there it's just developing the right uh, the right ui actually that's absolutely true uh in a very funny way for example uh the trezors and so forth the hardware wallets are fantastic right um except we can't expect to outfit the whole world with trezors it it turns out though that, um, that many laptops actually have hardware in them called the Trusted Platform Module. Uh, it's just a few dollars worth of hardware. It's a secure coprocessor, and it can serve the function of, of a Trezor. That's so, right, yeah. So that's, it's, it, but it is a matter of changing our infrastructure, right? It's, it's hard to tap into it uh, if you use, you know, whatever it is. Like your typical Windows installation is going to have BitLocker in it, but it's not going to be able to use um, the... Uh, the, the, the secure hardware coprocessor for storing your bit, your bit, uh, bitcoins. Yeah, and, and similarly, mobile phones are now, uh, I think in, in two or three years, now we're expecting to see mobile phones now all have a secure environment on which we can expect, you know, uh, I'll come back to Ledger, uh, but, you know, they're, they're also developing a, um, a secure OS to, uh, to be able to, so that people can actually have these on their mobile phones. So, I mean, I think we'll get there. Absolutely. I, I think the, the, the client-side security, I, I have sort of faith in that, 
I don't know, within maybe two years, we'll be at a point where it's significantly much better and definitely usable for a large majority of people. I mean, just in one year, we've made leaps and bounds. Uh, it's the server-side security that I, I think we need to be more worried about. And I think there, there needs to be some real improvements in terms of standards. Uh, I, dare I say legislation, but no, I don't. <laughs> um, but definitely in terms of industry standards, uh, there's lots of there's lots of room to grow. There. So I, I agree. So with my researcher hat on, you're absolutely right. So we know what it takes, for example, to create secure execution environments. We we know what it takes to attest to properties of an operating system. So uh, we know how to take advantage of trusted platform modules, for example. So I, I am also more hopeful on the client side than I am on the server side. On the server side, the the problem really stems from the way people construct these services. So if you're in the valley, uh, you're hearing this sort of narrative about how to create web services. And, you know, that narrative is always illustrated with personal blogs uh, or low-value services that, you know, I want to put up a little dynamic web page here and there. Oh, sure, you know, deploy MongoDB, uh, you know, use this cache or that or whatever. And voila, you've got a web page uh, that sort of does something cutesy. Uh, but when you're dealing with actual things of high value, like Bitcoins, that kind of technique is no longer good enough. In particular, people end up using these NoSQL databases to store their data. And uh, the first generation NoSQL databases that people go to, like Mongo, typically have incredibly weak guarantees. They do not guarantee consistency. They do not guarantee fault tolerance. And people have been building websites based on these technologies. So if you do do that, well, then you'll find yourself in a terrible, terrible situation where uh, you're using some database to, to store something really valuable, and that database doesn't guarantee anything. That what's good for a blog isn't good for a bank. So yeah. that's really the main concern on the service side, I think. Well, I, I think that's where standards needs to, uh, need to uh, come into play, right? I mean, Absolutely. Uh, Either I, standards or better education, perhaps. Yes, yes, also better education. Um, but as, as uh, the client-side security becomes better and better, I don't think we'll need to rely so much on these server-side solutions. Um, um, no, I disagree with you on that one. I, I disagree with you on that one. I think we'll always need centralized brokers to find each other. Imagine local Bitcoins, for example, um, it's, it's, yeah, you can do it in a peer-to-peer -peer fashion, but it's hard. Imagine any kind of an exchange. Yes, you can have a decentralized exchange, but it's actually not going to perform as well. It's going to be hard to audit. It's going to be open to all sorts of attacks. Uh, so there are a bunch of, uh, bunch of uh, unsolved problems on the decentralization side when it comes to these services. I, I don't think they're going away for the next five to ten years. Yeah, I, I, was, I was specifically talking more about... Uh, you know, uh, holding of coins so rather than everyone flocking to coinbase or some other coinbase competitor as security client-side security gets better then I, I i would assume people would have um and also with education people would hold their coins uh, but i might be wrong on that no no i agree i agree on the on the uh, wallet services front absolutely so uh, indeed people should be holding their own coins on their local secure devices as opposed to uh, uh to trust in something like coinbase i agree I, I would like to agree with that, but also to note that th there is uh, an inherent problem here uh, and, and another trade-off. Uh, so on one side, you want uh, you want security. On, on the other side, you want robustness. So how much are you going to trust your, your phone uh, to hold your, your coins? I mean, it can just be, I don't know, f f fall into the river or something, and then you lost your coins. So 
uh, you need replication, and when you have replication, the attacker has uh, more surface to 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 get your uh, your secrets away. And this is a problem that uh, starts with uh, with client side and goes on all the way up to the largest uh, uh, services out there that need to to replicate their their. Um, uh, they're called wallets uh, in a way that's uh, b both robust and secure, and it's it's a challenge. Uh, there is I, I don't think there's there are m many uh, similar uh, scenarios uh, in, anywhere for for any kind of data. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the one of the key things too is I mean, I think Sebastian, you're totally right, right? Like, the, I'm sure that it will become much much easier to hold. Uh, coins securely with hardware, etc. But that being said, of course, things will still go wrong, right? Sometimes people won't do it properly. Uh, probably very often they won't do it properly and they will lose their coin. And, and I think that is a very difficult thing, right? Because when people just like random people who like now get excited about this Bitcoin thing and then they lose their coin and there's no one to turn to, like there's no one they can call and say and they get it back or something. I think that's a that's a big challenge to somehow deal with that, and uh, yeah, I think that's because that's just not what people are used to, right? People are used to something goes wrong, they can call the credit card company and say like, "Hey, it was stolen, like something happened," um, and and I think that's also one of the reasons, I guess, why people will like hosted wallets, right? They will, it will regardless of the security, regardless of what you know, if someone says, "Oh, insurance on that and stuff," so I think that that that's very attractive. No, no, I agree that there. I think there's still some, some space for uh, some centralized service. But uh, I, I mean, I would like to uh, to see it move into a direction where we don't we don't have reliance on that so much anymore. No, absolutely, yeah. of course, and and I think it's fantastic that yeah, with hardware, multisig, etc., you know, it gets much better. But yeah, I think yeah, I mean, the server side, I, I agree. I agree with that concern. I think. That's a big challenge. So then I shouldn't use MongoDB to, for my uh, exchange startup idea. Then. That's what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> not, yeah, no, not if you care for your Bitcoins. <laughs> cool. Well, uh, thanks so much for coming on today, guys. It was, it was really great talking with you. It's super interesting. And uh, Thanks. It was a pleasure. And I think maybe, maybe we can do another episode at some point when it comes to the topic of scaling to 30,000 uh, transactions. Yeah. Well, we're, we're working towards it. Thank you very much for having us. Yes. Okay. Well, thanks so much. And um, yeah, thanks for listening, for listening. If you want to, you can follow us on Twitter at EpicenterBTC. And, you know, we will be back next week with another episode.